0: When they, uh, when they buried him, they did it in a very strange way. They buried him crosswise. Uh, down in the south, they would have said this fellow was cattywampus. <laughs> I mean, his tombstone, his burial plot was just out of line with everything else in this cemetery. It was the most unusual thing. Everything in this cemetery was all lined up in these nice, neat rolls, all except for this one gray site. This one gray site that kind of stood out like a sore thumb. This one particular grave site, the guy was buried at an angle. So he was at odds with everything else in this beautiful and peaceful setting. So immediately you come upon this grave site and you're thinking to yourself, what happened here? I mean, why is this grave site different from all the rest? What's the story behind this? Well, those are the kind of questions that popped in the mind of Fred Craddock. He was trying to do some research. He'd come to this old cemetery down there in South Carolina. An old cemetery just filled with lots and lots of history, but he wasn't expecting this. Here was a whole section of tombstones. That had the all, they all had the same last name, so they're all part of the same family. So here's this big family, long pedigree, lots and lots of descendants. And every one of these tombstones are lined up perfectly in this nice neat row, all except for the last one, the one that was Wampus. I mean, because of the angle at which they buried this guy, his gray site took more space than any other gray site. In fact, they had to use three burial plots just to bury the, the, the guy in the ground in that particular way. And again, you're thinking to yourself, why? So Fred Craddock went into town. He began to ask around, hey, what happened out here at the cemetery? And finally, he came across a man and said, uh, well, I knew him. I knew that guy. I knew him well. I knew him my entire life. We went to church together. OK, but but what happened out there at the, well, that's what the family wanted, and the whole church agreed, and Fred Craddock was really curious and, and confused, but I don't get it, but why, why put him in the ground in that particular way, and the man said, because that's the kind of guy he was, what do you mean, well, he was crosswise, cattywampus, I mean, he, he never wanted to fit in, he's always griping and complaining, he's, he's uh, nothing ever pleased him, you know. Did she have to do it that way? Do we all have to do it that way? I mean, he's always at odds with everybody else around him. The guy was a real stinker. So the family decided, and the whole church agreed, when it came time to bury that guy, we're going to bury him the same way he lived, crosswise. Have you ever had to work with somebody like that? Or have you ever had to live in the same house with somebody who's just always contrary Never happy, never pleased. They're, they're out of step with everybody else, always quarreling and bickering and disagreeing. They never line up on any of the issues. They're cattywampus to everybody else in the team. To have to live with somebody like that, to have to work with somebody like that, that can be so annoying and so discouraging and so frustrating. Well, that's the kind of church that Timothy's trying to work with here in the city of Ephesus. One of the things we'll notice in First Timothy, as this book we're going to begin to study today, one of the things you notice is the church is described as a family. In 1 Timothy, it'll use this phrase, that the church is God's household. But there's some people who live in this house, there's some people who are part of this church that are not pleasant to be around. There, there, are, there are people who are always... Uh, uh, people who are just always creating division and causing trouble and causing conflicts. And when you have that kind of drama, when you have that kind of family drama going on, man, it can just wear you out and it can wear you down. I mean, hey, if it's kids, we get that. Hey, it's kids, little kids, they're, they're acting up and they're misbabying, but they're kids. They're young, they're immature. One day they'll grow up, one day they'll get over it. One day we won't have to deal with that kind of nonsense anymore. But what happens when the kids grow up and they become adults and they're still misbehaving? What do you do with people who should know better and yet here they are still still creating all this strife and tension and turmoil? How do you correct that? Those are some of the questions that are on Timothy's mind. And so the Apostle Paul writes this letter to try and help answer some of those questions. Listen to what he writes. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, he's the one writing this letter, and he identifies himself as an apostle. Here's somebody who's uniquely equipped by God and uniquely sent out by God to represent Jesus, to make clear to this church family, here's what Jesus wants for this family. So when Paul writes this letter, he's not just sharing his own thoughts and opinions, no, he's speaking on behalf of the Lord. Paul, an apostle, meaning a missionary, a missionary for Jesus, I'm a missionary for the Messiah, and he is writing this because it's God who has prompted him to do this. Writing these words, the words in this letter, according to the command of God our Savior, and according to the Messiah, Jesus, the one who brings us hope. In other words, the first thing that's being emphasized in this verse is that the church is God's idea. Before we go running off to conferences, before we go reading all these books, and how are we supposed to do church? No, we've got to remember it's God who created this family. God's the one who brought us together, which means we need His input. If we're going to understand how the relationships within this family are supposed to work, which means when there is friction and chaos and discord, and there will be, because we're all sinful, nobody here is perfect. So there's going to be those moments when we find it hard to get along with one another. And when that happens, how do we resolve those difficulties? How do we work through those differences? Well, the first thing we've got to do is turn to God. We've got to lean on him for his help and his guidance and his grace. So it's God who's using Paul to write this letter. So here is God showing us his heart. Here's God showing us, hey, he understands that being a part of a family and learning how to get along together as a family, whether it's your biological family, or your spiritual family, that's not always easy. Families can be so messy. I mean, think about Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus was the firstborn child in his family, but he wasn't the last child. The Bible will tell us, Mark chapter 6, that Jesus had four brothers, at least two sisters. And the Bible will tell us in other places that there were times when the brothers and sisters didn't get along with Jesus. Have you ever been a part of a family like that? Did you ever have a sibling who knew just the right buttons to push? They knew exactly how to get under your skin and make you mad and make you sad. They knew exactly how to annoy you well, guess what? Jesus has been a part of a family like that, too. In fact, Jesus understands that families like are, are like a piece of fudge. Here's this piece of fudge, and it's mostly sweet, but this piece of chocolate has a few nuts mixed into it. <laughs> Did you have a few nuts in your family, or could it be that you were one of the nuts that drove everybody else in that family kind of crazy? So verse 1, it's God is using Paul to write this letter, And verse 2, he has somebody in particular in mind when this letter is going to be sent out, Timothy. It says, to Timothy, my true son in the faith. We need to appreciate the relationship that was going on between Paul and Timothy. I mean, they've had this longtime friendship. How did the relationship begin? It began way back there in Acts chapter 16. There we learn that Timothy, when he grew up in this home, he grew up in this biological family, like his father was a Greek, but his mother was a Jew. So his mother follows Jesus, his dad doesn't. So we get this impression that for the longest time, as Timothy's growing up in this home, he did not always have this positive male influence in his life. But Acts chapter 16, Paul steps into the picture. He takes Timothy under his wings. He begins to pour into this young man's life. I mean, he just, day after day after day, he just invests himself in Timothy to help this young man to grow and develop as a follower of Jesus. And so over the next 20 years these two Paul and Timothy they work together and they travel together. They travel to places like Corinth and Thessalonica and Jerusalem. We even find a period of time where Timothy's there in the city of Rome while Paul's in prison at Rome. And over this 20 year period of time the two of them they will collaborate on a number of different projects. Uh, the, the team, they, they produced six of the, of the books that we have here in the New Testament, books like Philippians and Colossians. And so, uh, over this 20-year period of time, if there's anybody who understands Timothy, if there's anybody who knows really, really knows how to connect to him and speak deeply into his life, it's this guy Paul, the one who has mentored him and taught him and trained him and discipled him. So, 20 years later, when Timothy finds himself all alone here in the city of Ephesus... And he finds himself in the middle of this really tough situation. And yet one day, by the grace of God, he gets this personal letter from Paul. And Timothy drops everything. Man, if there's anybody who's got my ear, it's Paul. And if he's got something to say to me, I want to hear what he has to say. So notice the last part here, verse 2. Apostle Paul, right off the bat, as he's writing this letter, he's, he's wanting to give some encouragement to Timothy. And so he says, Timothy, hey, every day you're on my mind. You're always on my mind. And when you're on my mind and I'm thinking about you, one of the things that I do for you, I pray for you. And of all the different kinds of prayers that I pray, here's one of the prayers that I pray for you. It's the last part of verse 2. Grace, mercy, and peace. In other words, these are blessings that only God can bring about. This is something that only God can provide, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from our Messiah, Jesus, our Lord, our leader, our King. So, Timothy's learning two uh, two lessons. Number one, God's church, God's family can be a very messy family, which means sometimes other people in this family are going to hurt you. And sometimes when they hurt you, they're not going to apologize. I mean, I wish that weren't true, but there's some people who are really stubborn and really selfish, and sometimes they won't own up to the trouble that they're causing other people, which means when that happens, when we get hurt like that, what we've got to be careful about is that we do not allow Satan to use that pain to cripple us and to hold us hostage, where our minds are just fixated on that person and all the the turmoil that they're stirring up in our lives, and, man, look at what they're doing to me. No, no truth number two. Number one, you will get hurt. But truth number two, when you get hurt, you've got to understand this. Your family, your biological family, your church family, they're going to say and do some crazy, crazy things. And you cannot always control that. But what you can control is your response to them. Hey, I don't like some of the, the painful, awful things that they've done, but I can forgive I can release. I can let go. One of the important things, when I forgive, I'm doing this not just for their benefit. I'm doing it for my benefit. So I do not continue to let that trouble, that pain, rule and govern my mind. No, I want to grow. I want to heal. Every day I want to keep my heart open to the Lord so God can continue to work in my life and help me to keep moving forward. That's what this prayer is all about. You've heard me use this analogy before, and other people use this analogy too. Let's say you're taking a trip, this long trip. So you're traveling by plane. So you get on the plane, and just before you take off, you remember, the flight attendant stands up and they give these instructions. In case of an emergency, you know we're up there in the air, and this cabin that we're in, this cabin begins to lose pressure. Here's what's going to happen. The oxygen mask that you see in that panel on that head uh, above your head there, the oxygen mask will drop down. You grab that mask and put it on your face. You cover your nose and your mouth. You you tighten the straps, and you begin to breathe. Just breathe. And once you do that, if you've got some little children traveling with you, or maybe there's somebody next to you that's going to need assistance, you make sure your own mask is secured first, and then you help them. Well, man, the first time you hear those instructions, it just sounds so selfish. Man, when you're in the the midst of an emergency, shouldn't you be thinking of others first? And yet these instructions that are being given to you by that flight attendant are so wise. And they're so strategic. I mean, how can I be out here helping other people to breathe if if, if, if I'm not getting air for myself if I don't have the mask on my face, it's not going to be long before I pass out. And now instead of helping other people, I'm going to become part of the problem. So that's what Timothy is being taught here. Timothy, yes, God wants you to go out and help other people to become healthy and strong in their walk with God. But before you do that, Timothy, you've got to make sure your own walk with God is healthy and strong. Timothy, every day, you've got to put that mask on your face. Meaning, Timothy, you've got to open this book. This is no ordinary book. This is God's book. 2 Timothy 3.16. It is a God-inspired book. Literally, it says, a God-breathed book. Here's the means by which every day God's going to pour out His favor upon our lives. Here's the means by which he He breathes His life into us. The means by which every day He fills our hearts with His grace, His truth, His love, His wisdom. Timothy! Without that divine oxygen, your soul will just wilt and die. You know, I've always been intrigued by that uh, story of Jesus, the story about Jesus there in Matthew chapter 4. It's the occasion where Jesus is being tempted by the devil. And one of the places where the devil brings Jesus, as he's trying to put him to the test and trying to trip him up, one of the places that the devil brings Jesus is the temple. And when I read that, I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on? Of all places, why would the devil bring Jesus to the temple? The temple, is that not the house of God? Is that not the place where you're going to find people praying and singing and worshiping the Lord? Man, if there's one safe spot where you shouldn't have to worry about the devil at all, it's the temple. And yet the Bible stones there, Matthew chapter 4, even there in that holy spot, Even in this place where you're trying to do something noble by fixing your eyes upon Jesus, even then your faith can really be put to the test. Here's an example. You can travel over to Germany, and you can come to this place where the tour guide will point to an ink stain, an ink stain splattered there on the wall. It's an ink stain that has been there for more than 500 years. This is the place where 500 years ago, one day Martin Luther, he picked up this little glass jar filled with ink, and he threw it at the devil. And to me, what is fascinating about this ink stain is where you find it. That ink stain is not splattered in the wall of a tavern. No, that ink stain is splattered in the wall of a church building. It is a place 500 years ago on that day where Martin Luther was trying to do something noble for the Lord. He was trying to translate the New Testament, to take it from the Greek of the New Testament and translate it into German so the people of Germany could read the Bible for themselves. So here's Martin Luther engaged in this great spiritual endeavor. And yet Martin Luther will tell you, on that day he encountered one of the most severe forms of temptation he'd ever encountered in his entire life. A day when he said, the devil seemed so real and so vivid to me that he said, I felt like physically I needed to chase him out of the room. So he picked up that little jar of ink and he threw it at the devil and said, get out of here. But isn't that interesting? There behind the walls of a church building. Martin Luther had to fight one of the toughest spiritual battles of his entire life. Same thing happened to Jesus. Some of his toughest battles happened right there in the temple. It wasn't just Matthew 4. Again and again throughout the life of minister of Jesus, he was constantly having to chase the devil out of the house of God. Timothy's being told that same thing here. Timothy, don't be surprised. Here in the church, in God's family, if you don't encounter every once in a while some people who are teaching things that are false, they're confusing people and leading people astray. And Timothy, when that happens, you cannot be passive. You cannot sit back and just let this happen. you got to stand up. you got to speak out. you got to confront this evil. you got to expose this error. Timothy, every day, got to show people the truth about Jesus. And Timothy, that won't be easy. So how do you handle that challenge. Well, that's this prayer. Timothy, every day, you've got to do what the Apostle Paul's doing for you. As every day Paul is praying for you, Timothy, you've got to pray this same prayer. Hey, yesterday was great. The grace that God showed to me, that was wonderful. But this is a new day with a whole new set of challenges. God, today, today, I need a fresh outpouring of your grace and your mercy and your peace. Let me wrap it up this way. In the Bible, you'll notice a pattern where you'll see people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had this habit, this spiritual habit, that when God did something significant in their life, immediately they just paused. And they put everything else on hold, and they realized, hey, God just did something special for us. We want to make sure we don't forget that. We want to make sure we don't take that for granted. So they put everything else on hold. They gathered up a bunch of stones, and they built a monument. Something they can see. And so that generations later, other people can see this too. Hey, it was on this spot, this very spot, where God did something special for us. I mean, here I was. I was in the midst of a crisis, but then God showed up. God responded. God came to my rescue. And the God who saved me, know this, he can save you too. Well, one day, rather than Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, one day it was God Himself who prepared a memorial. And rather than using stones, he used a piece of wood, a cross. And it was on that cross that the Lord laid his own life down on the cross so he could do something special for us, so we could be forgiven of all our sin, and so that from that moment on forever, we could enjoy a new life with him. That's why every Sunday morning... We have this habit. We do what Jesus asked us to do. Jesus said, whenever you eat the bread and drink the cup, do this in remembrance of me. So each Sunday morning, we do what Jesus asked us to do. We pause, and we just put everything else on hold so that we can take time to pray, so that we can take time to meditate, So we can just fix our eyes upon Jesus. And as we fix our eyes on him, we begin to pray the prayer that Timothy was taught to pray. God, today, grant to me and grant to this entire church family a fresh outpouring of your grace and your mercy and your peace. So as we get ready to enter this time of communion with Jesus, as we prepare to remember Jesus and all the great things he has done for us, let's pray. God, is an honor, a profound honor and joy just to be in your presence right now. It is such a blessing to have a moment like this where we can just enjoy your company. God, use this moment to renew and restore our relationship with you. God, today, grant to us, every one of us as individuals, and grant to us together as a church family, grant us a fresh outpouring of your grace, your mercy, and your peace. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen.